Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode we're discussing more thrillers and horror movies from 1990. We're discussing kind of like from hell genres, uh, where we're you know it's uh, this one is uh, Blue Steel with like yeah. So what, is this like the fan from hell? The, the I don't know what you would call Blue Steel. Um, Fanatic from hell, obsessive yeah, from hell. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting movie because it's not doing the obvious like obsession. It's he his is more like uh, oh we're on the same wavelength, you know, like oh I want to kill. This gave me life, you know. <laughs> this gave me something to live for, and he was just like triggered by her shooting somebody else. A young Tom Sizemore, I might add. Yes, good pun by the way. Got triggered. Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that was accidental. <laughs> Uh, what is this? Uh, didn't we just do? Yeah, we just talked about Tom Sizemore. I think his debut, at least for us, was uh, Lock Up with Stallone just a couple episodes ago. The uh, yeah, the movie. I think the fact that it is a cop thriller, but from the perspective of a woman directed by a woman, is really what makes this stand out. And I think it's a very good movie. I remember seeing this when it first came out and just being wowed by it because I don't think I'd ever really seen anything like it before. What I thought was pretty notable in the opening when she's doing, well, it, what it seems like is a life or death struggle with, um, you know, breaking into the person's apartment and he's abusing his wife or girlfriend or whatever. And then uh, she shoots him and then the, the abused woman suddenly pulls out a gun and then shoots her and then you realize that this is like training yeah i was like that's actually probably pretty realistic to how cops are trained it's like just shoot everybody just in case because that's probably they probably have a gun so i i thought that was pretty funny um but yeah what i think is interesting is like the first like third of the movie kind of like that high octane cop thriller kind of vibe to it and then the last two thirds is like this really slow uh, slow burn kind of uh, all, like creepy stalker movie. It's, it's it's kind of strange, but it's it's really good. Yeah, and the thing is that his character, um, you know, he can he's a lot smarter. He's not just some straight up psycho. He also is a master manipulator. He knows how to twist and turn like moments to in his advantage, especially with the law and evidence and stuff like that. I mean, he's a, a stock trader, so yeah, he's got he's got a mind for this kind of shit. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, because we start off as she's just like this rookie cop. It's like one of her early you know uh, missions or whatever. You know, and she's just doing her beat. You know, and and she just stops a robbery at a, a convenience store. He happens to be there, and infatuated by the fact that he got to witness a murder, and it was like a, a adrenaline rush because. Well, his job is super boring, and he's got nothing really to excite him, and this is his, like, almost his midlife crisis kind of situation. He's reborn! Yeah, I, I really like that setup. I just wish that there was, they explained um, the, her situation a little bit more because of the shooting at the store. Um, she basically was put on probation um, because apparently... None of the people who she saved came forward, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of strange. You think someone, I mean, yeah. there, was, there wasn't like there was nobody in there. There was a lot of people. He disappeared, but there were other people and no one bothered at all. Yeah, so the guy, basically, the, 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 the killer, the, you know, the last two-thirds of the movie, he steals the gun from the scene, so it looks like she just shot someone who didn't have a gun. Right. And um, But there were, like, five other witnesses there who he 
was pointing a gun at. So you'd think one of them would have said, yeah, there is a gun. You guys just need to look for it. It's not, it's not there. But So I thought that was a little bit weird, but I do really like that idea of this. If it was just that one guy uh, that was witness to the whole thing, I think it would have worked a lot better. But yeah, it's still yeah. really good. It's a good setup. The uh, it's it's a cat and mouse outwitting each other, but it does it's kind of interesting to see her fail over and over again, and and just you know she just so persistent and will not give up. But I think the most tense scene of this entire movie is when he visits her parents. I was just gonna say that yeah, it's it's so creepy. I, I love those kind of scenes where there's this ulterior motive that like there's like there's a, there's a thing happening that. Some characters notice, but other characters who are in the same scene don't. And you have to kind of walk that line of, yeah. like, trying to get that person out of your house while at the same time not alarming your parents to what is happening. I mean, if I remember correctly, at this point, he's already shot her friend, correct? Or am I wrong? I, I don't think he did. Okay. Point. But I know it just it seemed like one of these things where she knows that they're in danger, and she has to yeah, play he's, innocent he's, he's and stupid. escalating for sure, yeah. Yeah, where where she but she's just chomping at the bit to be like, get the fuck out of here, mom, dad, run, and she can't because he, they're being put in danger. Yeah. Um, and this and is from. That was also kind of weird that she she arrested her father because he was beating her mom, which makes sense. Yeah. And then she just like let him go, and then he's like this happy-go-lucky parent when he gets home. Like there there isn't like this discussion about what just happened, or like this cathartic moment or anything is just she drives him out and have this like this really intense conversation uh about him physically abusing his mom and then he gets home and he sits back watch tv with a smile on his face well uh, i mean i could chalk that up to an altered perception of reality whereas he erases it from his mind that that moment even happened because that would admit that he was maybe guilty or that he did something wrong and he doesn't want to deal with that. So he just blocks it out and goes back to normal. Mm. Maybe. I it's mean, like a lie to yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, we have Clancy Brown in this. One of the few times I think he's played a good guy because for the most <laughs> part we know him playing a villain in so many movies. I was thinking that too. Yeah, and I think he's very good. I think their chemistry is great. Um, and I think the showdown at the end... Really the sex scene's too awkward for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's too much of an age difference still. Uh, yeah, because he's always been like a big brute. It was kind of like, huh? Um, I never saw him as like a sexual kind of guy. But um, I do. I think the ending was really good cat and mouse kind of, uh, you know, it's almost like a chess piece where you're moving them around or whatever to keep other people from getting shot and yourself shot. Yeah, that's one of the things I did, I did really like about um, the, this villainous character is... Again, we've already talked about his intelligence, but I just really, I really do appreciate having, I don't want to say a superior intelligence uh, to her, but definitely someone who is on par, possibly smarter than her. Um, so that does make for a more intimidating villain. Uh, like even in the shootout using cover, like the way that he did was very, was very clever. Like that kind of stuff I, I really like. The, um, so this is from Catherine Bigelow, and, and her first couple movies were kind of cursed because she was making them for companies that were on the verge of going out of business. Uh, Near Dark was her previous film, um, and even the one that she wrote earlier, uh, The Hitcher, was also from a company that wasn't you know doing very strong. So it seemed like you know it was like three right in a row would have destroyed her career. 
But James Cameron really stuck it out for her, and you know the next year she does Point Break, and that was a big hit. But I think this I mean, this deserved, I think, better than it did. It only made eight million dollars. It was from a company that had already gone out of business and was sold to MGM, and MGM just didn't really care, so they just threw it out there like in January when nobody goes to the movies. Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, like, especially like Near Dark and The Hitcher are still are like good movies. I'm just kind of surprised that. It was kind of an issue for her. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, like like I said, she found her footing. But, you know, she's one of those directors that really broke through, I think. Because when when you think of female directors, you know, action-wise, I I feel like she's the first one that people are like, yeah, she kind of started that that road. Because, you know, they were doing romantic comedies and and stuff like that, or or lighthearted comedies, but they were never really known for action. Um. So I would say this one is definitely worth watching. It's free on Vudu. And our second film is another from hell. It's the Tenant from Hell. <laughs> um, it's called Pacific Heights. And this one was a big hit at the time. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if you look at the cast, they were all coming off of big projects. Um, so that, that helped the hype. And it's, it's weird that it says Anne Michael Keaton as if it was a special appearance. He's in almost all of this movie. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has the less, the less amount of screen time than everybody, but I mean, he's in a good portion of it. Yeah, and, and this is, it's funny, the movie is about them basically burying themselves. They keep setting up this situation, but he's also a master manipulator, like in the last movie, and he keeps using, like, legal loopholes and then pushing situations. He's, and what effectively he's trying to do, he's a con artist who always sets up these situations where he usually gets to walk away with lots of money. Um, by driving people crazy or conning them out of something. And now he's in deep shit with some guys that he owes money. So he's going to pull off a big scam this time. And this one is to basically steal a house from somebody. <laughs> Which is complicated, but the way that he does it, it makes sense. I almost wonder if this really happened to the filmmakers. You know, the guys who wrote this or whatever, they heard about this story. It's like, yeah, this is if you're going to do it, this is how you do it. Yeah, uh, it, it's, uh, it tracks really well. It, it seems ridiculous, but, like, the, the amount of uh, preparation and research that he does, because, like, for being a con artist, he is incredibly intelligent, which I think goes to his background when they go into it a little bit, that he does come from a very wealthy family, so he was probably well-educated. He was just a, a bad seed or whatever and just kind of chose a, a different life. But he still used a lot of that intelligence that he uh, gained and a lot of wisdom that he gained from um, his childhood, uh, its early adulthood, and into this career, and so like the amount of preparation and work that he put into this scheme, it really works. Yeah. Well, I think I think they require some sort of like when most. I think a lot of rich people who don't really have any talent usually got that way through some ill-gotten gains. I mean, this sociopathic behavior, you know, and greed and stuff like that in con artists, it kind of all feeds into each other. So I feel like he was just an apple that didn't far that fall away, far away from the tree, but just enough for to you know to shame the family. Um. But yeah, and, and then we have the situation where Melanie Griffith and uh, Matthew Modine, they're a young couple, and they're they're getting ready to buy a home, and, and they're living in Pacific Heights, which is a super rich Victorian neighborhood of uh, San Francisco, and everything's yeah, already expensive yeah, as I it did, is. I, I did the, the pricing on that with the uh, inflation calculator, because I'm yeah. just so curious. Uh, in, in today's money, that one bedroom, like the, at that 
I don't even think there is a bedroom. I think it's just a flat with the bathroom and kitchen. Would it cost like twenty five hundred dollars? Oh wow! Um, and they're buying the whole building. That's the thing. It's it's, it's wild about this is that these the kids they, they lie and fudge. Look, I kind of lie and fudge to get this house too, but it was a lot cheaper than in San Francisco. Um, but they really yeah, like the, the house itself was like in today's dollars about one and a half million. Yeah, and renting it out for twenty five hundred per room which is like two rooms like that that was a stupid decision on their part but that was the point that they were making it was like this is this is either going to work out or it's going to ruin you and it's most likely going to ruin you yeah and and i watching this movie it brought up nightmares of what my parents went through when i was a kid uh because we owned a house and we rented it out when we moved to a different neighborhood and and the people who rented it from us, they just destroyed the place. They weren't they weren't paying the rent. My parents took them to court, and we my parents won. But when they got out um, to the steps out in front of the courthouse, they were the guys that we sued or whatever were waiting for them and said, "If you ever try to come and get your money, we'll kill your kids." So my parents never got any of the money. They got at least got the people out of the house, but the house was all fucked up by then. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, the. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an, I hear it all the time. People who rent apartments and houses, whatever, somehow they keep, I don't know how with, you know, credit checks and background checks and stuff like this, how this doesn't just follow them around, but people lie enough, they manipulate enough, and they just keep going. And, and most companies just want that, they want to fill the building and they want to rent. And like these guys, here's the weirdest thing is that because of Michael Keaton manipulating his situation like he's throwing away applications and he just decides to move himself in and says yeah 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 I'm busy right now I'll do this or whatever the checks in the mail whatever he just keeps stalling enough until he becomes legally a tenant and he has squatters rights and then they can just never get rid of him well I mean they do that is the that is the thing it's like there is a whole process but he knows that they're poor from buying the house that they can't afford to go through the right process to do it so like initially yeah he kind of tries to blindside them with like i'll pay you this much money i have this job and i have this prestigious so of course i can make the rent i can pay for the entire year just right now you know just give me a day or two and then keep pushing pushing and pushing until um they finally like all right yeah because it's going to be worth it to us because we still we need a lot of money and then of course never paying them and um but since he's legally a tenant because he signed the paper, yeah, now they have to wait until they can kick him out. And then they wait until they kick him out, and that's when he escalates again by putting, by using that time that he had, I think he had like three months or something like that to get yeah. his affairs in order. And using that entire time to try to get the husband into a situation where they get into a physical altercation, and then that way he can sue them and try to get the house. And that was basically the, the whole plan. Yeah, and I'm, I'm and I'm wondering if his plan was to just keep the house. I'm assuming he was just going to win it and then sell it off to pay off the debts that he owed the other people. I don't know because you can't. How was he going to sell all that damage he did to the house? Uh, that's true. <laughs> um, but I think is really interesting is I was wondering while watching this, Melanie Griffith had just got nominated for an Oscar right before this for Working Girl, and I was like, why would she take this role? Because she seemed like just the put upon girlfriend, and it doesn't really have much to do. And I had seen the movie before, but it had been thirty years. I forgot that halfway through the movie, the leads switch. It's no longer yes. Matthew Modine because he goes to jail, and then she doesn't live on his rage and anger, you know, which got him into so much trouble. She decides to go ahead 
and become the hunter instead of the prey and try to outwit him. And I thought that was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, me too. It was definitely because there were a few things that bothered me, and then the that that was the point was that the husband was maybe a little bit racist, Um, but that came back to bite him in the ass because the person he ended up trusting was uh, was a white guy who caught him out of all of this and his anger of trying to be like the man of the house and get control and order back is what ended up which is like playing right into the guy's hands and then Melanie Griffith's character uh, was was thinking more about like what is this guy's end goal and yeah, knowing yeah. what he wants she was able to subvert and and so she really it became the uh, the hero of the story yeah I just thought I think that one of the two, I think Pacific Heights. I think it does a little. It's a little bit better filmed, and also just the story is just a little more intricate. I, I think I would prefer of the two that one, but they're both worthy <laughs> watches. Yeah, I would say Pacific Heights too because it's also a very uh, small in scope because it, it's it's really intimate because this person is like living right below you the whole time. And you never know what's going to happen next. So it has this unpredictability to it. Yeah. Um, so that is the end of this episode. As you can see, as the 90s roll on, some of the horror is going to set back for a while as the psychological thrillers come in. And I think, I think there's still horror movies. The only problem is, is it didn't, it's, it stopped selling and people wanted to win awards and get acclaimed. They wanted the suburbans to come and see these movies. So they call them psychological thrillers, which is just, you know, the snooty. It's like the way we see elevated horror now, you know? It's still horror. <laughs> it's just a different yeah. vibe. We're, we're, we're dipping again, man. I, was, I went to go see Barbarian, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But to do that, I had to watch like five or six just the horrible, horrible horror film trailers. And uh, so I'm like, man, like one out of every, no, like now one out of every five horror movies looks good. Like it's it's a bad. I feel like we're getting to the oversaturation again, so we're going to be repeating history here. Yeah, I mean, because right now they're so insanely profitable, and horror movies have always been pretty profitable. But also, there is a burnout factor, especially when they all seem to have kind of the same vibe. Um, I don't know what the next. I would say the one thing that should come back, and I would deeply appreciate it, but maybe it won't, is like more action oriented horror. You know, like, you know, it, it's usually a cycle of 25 years with horror, and so we're coming upon, like, the 25 years of Blade and stuff like that, and we're going to get a new one of those. We have Werewolf by Night coming out. I don't want it to be all comic book stuff, but I think that we're going to get some action horror soon. Oh, yeah, we were, I mean, like, Doctor Strange uh, kind of started that. Too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that one was pretty good. Um, it, was, it was fine. <laughs> there was a lot of great things about it, but I feel like I feel like that is going to be kind of like the next uh, push is to do more movies like that. And yeah, kind of a little bit, better. a little bit bigger budget, but you know those have also failed horribly. If anybody remembers Van Helsing, <laughs> yeah, I was there for that man. I was there. <laughs> I played to a very empty theater when we had it opening weekend. I was shocked. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, so that is it for this episode. Check us out on uh, all your podcast hosts, Facebook and Twitter under Hit Rewind, and have a good night.